Here's what you need to know as we continue our story this week. Today we return to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah in the 5th century BC as we explore the words of Judah's last Old Testament prophet, Malachi. Unlike most of the other prophets, Malachi gives little to no warnings against idolatry. Yahweh's discipline through the exile had mostly purged the people of this sin, but now they had new problems. The former prophets had spoken about a day when God would restore the glory of his people, and many assumed that this would take place immediately after they returned. When it didn't, the people became disillusioned. Unlike their forefathers, they remained relatively orthodox in their beliefs, but it was a dead orthodoxy, filled with cynicism, ethical compromise, and religious shortcuts. In response, God sent Malachi to wake them from their sleep with promises of his love, along with calls for robust obedience and sincere worship. Well, good morning. I have not been up here in some time. So for those of you in the room who are new, uh, my name is Ryan Vincent, and, uh, and it's my pleasure to serve on our adult ministry team here at Sunnybrook Christian Church. Um, and it's going to be my great joy to open up the scriptures with you this morning and to, uh, to hear what God has to say to us through the book of Malachi. This is, uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to, to Malachi 1. This is the very last book in your Old Testament, starting in Genesis, running all the way through Malachi. So it goes Malachi, then you'll have a New Testament page, and then you'll have Matthew. So we're right there at the end. And... Uh, this is a wonderful way, I think, to end our series on the gospel of the kings and prophets before we transition over the next few weeks into more of a Christmas series. And this is good for a couple of reasons. This, um, this, 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 this message and, and, and really the whole series feeds well into the Christmas season. And, and if we talk about December showing up and all of a sudden it's Christmas time or it's Advent and we're supposed to have this, this measure of Christmas cheer, well then this is a good way to get there. This is, the good, this is the book that ends the Old Testament with this promise of the Messiah and then the New Testament begins with that Messiah coming and the very reason that we celebrate Christmas. And so it's the very reason that we all go around for the next few weeks incredibly cheerful. Now, if you know me well, You'll, you'll understand if I say, I love Christmas because I love that we have a regular period each and every year where we talk about the incarnation. I feel like that is one of those things. That and Easter are incredible things that we ought to talk about regularly, and so I'm glad we just have them on the calendar, and every year, end of year, we talk our incarnation, and then in the spring we go Easter. But it's the Christmas cheer part that I sometimes have a hard time with. Sometimes it just feels a bit contrived to me. All of a sudden we go from Thanksgiving to murder each other Friday to now we are supposed to be cheerful again. It's sometimes I, I just have a hard time. It feels like we just made this up. We pretend like we live in a winter wonderland. We live in Oklahoma. It's 60 degrees. This is hard for me. Um, I, I've never had a strong opinion on when the Christmas tree should come out. I've just never cared. Um, I, I don't know that I really care too much when radio stations start to play Christmas music. I'm not against Christmas. I've just, I've just never been real wound up about it. But this year is different. For whatever reason, I am 
really in the Christmas spirit this year. And I think a lot of it has to do with having young kids in the home. Because while I don't care about Christmas trees, their delight, it feeds my Christmas spirit. It feeds my Christmas cheer. I've never been interested in putting lights on my house because I know that unless I just want to be a lazy neighbor, I have to take them down. You could leave them up all year round, but don't do that. And so I've never really been interested in doing that. But when we drive into our neighborhood and my kids light up in the backseat, look, Dad, look, it's beautiful. Look at Frosty. Like, all of a sudden, I like Christmas lights. Because they do, I do. We got the tree. I think the day before Thanksgiving, we actually got our tree out this year. And we let our kids decorate it. And I do not care how it looks. I enjoyed watching them decorate it. We have a cluster of ornaments about this high. And then another cluster about this high. And I'm, just, I'm not going to change it. I like where they are. Our tree looks ridiculous, and I love it. And, and it warms my heart that that's what they wanted to do, and they think it's great. We have stockings on our mantle, and, and it's been 60 degrees outside, and we've been burning fires in the fireplace left and right. I'm sweating in my own home, but we're in the Christmas spirit. And I, through the eyes of my children, I am enjoying it. Even, we, we, at the end of every meal uh, or dinner time, we, while we're cleaning up, we turn music on real loud in our house, and then the kids start dancing, and we have all this fun, and, and for the last couple of weeks, it's been Christmas music, and I'm not a Christmas music guy, but I've been enjoying Christmas music as they enjoy Christmas music. So I am experiencing a new level of Christmas cheer that I've never before had, but there is still this tension in the whole thing for me. Um, we've got a, a goofy-looking tree up, and, and I know over the next several weeks, we'll start to put gifts under it. And that's an exciting thing for our kids. And I know that there are families in our own family that this is not an exciting time for them because that is, that is financially stressful and hard. I know that we are unnecessarily burning fire. And, uh, and I, I don't need that, though, because I have a furnace that will keep my house at the exact temperature I want it for the next three months. And I know that there are people in this community that don't have a home, and they're loving the unseasonably warm winter because they dread when the overnight temps drop below freezing. I, I have Spotify constantly telling me that it's, the most wonderful time of year. I don't know how many times that song is going to come on, but apparently it's the most wonderful time of year. And there are families at a school, in a little place called Aztec. There are families at a church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. There's families in Nevada that are, it's not the most wonderful time of year for many. There are families in this community, in this fellowship that have lost loved ones recently. It's not the most wonderful time of year for them. And I come to this point where all of a sudden I appreciate Christmas, which has a lot to do with my kids and probably some to do with having an office near Morgan Weiss. And all of a sudden I'm experiencing, the, and, and I feel like I come crashing back down as I, as I look at the, a broken, broken world. And I see that there's just a lot of tension still there. That tension, I think, can help, if you can feel that tension at all, I think that can help us understand the situation in ancient Israel when they've returned from exile. 
This is supposed to be great. This is supposed to be wonderful. We're finally free from Babylon. We're going home. We're going to build that temple. We're going to rebuild the walls to Jerusalem. Everything's going according to plan. We have purged the nation of idolatry. We are now doing well. And then they look around and like, this is not that great. We're not even a sovereign nation. That temple's not as impressive as Solomon's. There are still some old men in the community that remember the old one, and they just weep looking at this new one. We're still, I mean, we're not in Babylon anymore, but we're still subject to the powers around us. And what should have been a great time in the nation was a time riddled with conflict and tension and wonder and doubt. And that's what Malachi has to go speak to. Those are the ones that Malachi has to go talk to, to the nation that is still asking, are we still Abraham's descendants? Because this sure doesn't look like how it was supposed to play out. The truth is they had a lot longer to wait and they had to, they had to be patient and they were struggling with it, but I'm sure many of you can understand that. I'm not a patient person. My wife can verify that very much. I'm, I'm not a very patient person. There's not a lot of things I want, but the things that I do want or the things I want to do, I will move heaven and earth to do them. I'm impatient, but I'm stubborn, and I have a resolve that'll get things done, and that can be frustrating sometimes, but there are times where I have to wait. Either it can't be done now, or it's not right to do it now, and I have to wait. And in that long season of waiting, I think like the nation of Israel, I can grow tired and frustrated. And eventually that frustration morphs into this angst. I'm calling it a broken angst. And really it's, I've become very jaded. And once I reach that point where I have a brokenness about me that manifests itself in angst, I start asking questions. I do this now with all the difficult things that go on in this world. I ask God, when are you going to fix this? And in, inside my questions, there can be a very subtle accusation that you've not done the right thing, God. I need you to deliver on what you said you were going to do. And of course, the message of Scripture is that he's never dropped the ball, not once. And yet, like the nation of Israel, I start asking questions. And the book of Malachi comes to us as a series of questions on behalf of the people that God is answering. And so we listen in on chapter 1. God tells them, hey, just so you know, I have loved you perfectly well. And then the brazen question that's asked back to him is, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? At this point in their history, Israel was impossibly dull. Like I said, they've, they've purged the nation of idolatry, but... Now that they have a relative orthodox belief system, they are faithful to the one God. Their worship, because they, they don't like the way things are going, that temple doesn't look all that great, the city's a lot smaller than we expected it to be, we're not even in charge of this place. Because of all of that, they're having a hard time worshiping well. And it looks like at this point in Israel's history, the people, and even worse, the priesthood, are just mailing it in sacrificing imperfect animals. I'm just calling it good. 
And they can't, they can't see the love of God because they've stopped loving him themselves. And I think that that has very much to do with one another. They cannot see the love of God because they have stopped loving him themselves. And this is such a modern question. How have you loved us, God? This is chapter 1, verse 2. How have you loved us? This sounds like a question I hear a lot today. Especially when something heinous happens. Hey, I thought your God was really loving. You guys going to stick with that story that God is so loving? How come all these good or bad things are happening to good people? Wildfires in Southern California. How come your God is letting such things happen? An earthquake in Haiti. How come your God lets that happen? Mass shootings. How come your God lets that happen? These are modern questions. I thought your God was so loving. Is he not? And part of me wants to think, wow, this is where we've come. This is, what, this is the, in the age of, of reason and rationale and coming out of the Enlightenment period. We, we now think we can accuse God of just not being as loving as we all once thought. Maybe we were just really dumb back then. And the truth is, that's not a modern question. Israel asked that question two and a half thousand years ago. How have you loved us? Humanity's ability to, for, to forget things is incredible. And Israel apparently had a hard time remembering what God had done for them. Because the story of Scripture is just one of God's unfailing love. His love is incredibly sovereign. He didn't have to pick Abraham's family. And yet he did. He was not coerced into loving Abraham, to making a covenant with him, to redeem and reconcile the world to him. He was not forced to do any of these things. He chose to. His love is incredibly sovereign, and yet his love is also incredibly personal. He walks with the patriarchs. He escorts the Israelites out of Egypt. He speaks to his people through prophets. He'll one day send his son to die in our place, and then he'll fill us with his spirit. He is both sovereign and he's incredibly personal. How have you loved us? It seems like an absurd question when you look at the scope of history. Yet Israel can't remember. How have you loved us? God says through the prophet Malachi, chapter 1, verse 2, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. When you see in the prophets, when they they start using the name Jacob, read Israel. Yet I have loved Israel, but Esau I have hated. Now that's complicated. It's a little complicated, but here's what it's trying to say. So we, we, we look at this and we see love and then we see hate from the same loving God. And we, we wonder, wow, is he, is he contradicting himself? I thought he was all loving and there's no hatred in him. Well, love and judgment or love and justice are two sides of the same coin. And to separate them is actually rather dangerous. To separate them is to start to pull apart the character of God. His, his love comes And when it does, it brings judgment on those who won't accept that love and align themselves with him. He says, I I chose Jacob, I chose Israel, and because Esau rejected me, I have rejected him. And then look at what it says, I have laid waste his hill country. Those who defy the Lord will meet destruction and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. You cannot challenge God's judgment. 
the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes, Israel, shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God chose Jacob. How loving. He's protected Jacob from the Edomites. Incredibly loving. And he's destroyed those who hate him. There is judgment in his love. And that can be difficult for us. I find it difficult. And yet this is, this is how complex God is. I don't know if I want to call him complicated. That has certain um, insinuations that I don't want to go there. But he is complex. His love comes wrapped up in justice. Maybe a good illustration would be the love that exists inside of a marriage. Can a marriage be both loving and just or loving and doing the right thing? Can, in, in, in our marriage, Rachel and I, we do what we can to have a virtually endless well of forgiveness to offer to one another. We have committed to a lifetime of being merciful to one another. And that happens inside the confines of a very strict relationship with very strong boundaries. I think God, like that which exists inside of a marriage, is the the only one who's willing to forgive the most while condoning the least. He doesn't permit sin or dismiss sin. He forgives it if it's repented from. And he will not condone it if it's not. Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated. How have you loved us? Just look at your history, Israel. How have you loved us? Relentlessly so, perfectly so. And then we'll say, okay, well, okay, we get it. You're you're loving. God is love. We all all have a, a strong affection for that particular idea. Okay, so I'm really glad that God is love. Is that is that good? And God says, actually, no, 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 no. Because you have forgotten my love, you failed to honor me. And the question that Israel asks is, hey, wait, how have we despised your name? How have we despised your name? We've done a good job. We've come and we've worshiped. We've sacrificed. How have we despised your name? He says in verse 7, by offering polluted food on my altar, as if there's a right and a wrong way to worship. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, something not permitted by the Levitical code, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. Now, before we focus too much on the fact that this is clearly written to the priesthood, we have to just take stock of the fact that the nation is bringing insufficient sacrifices to God. And you know what the priests are doing? They're saying, ah, it's fine. Just go for it. Which leads me to ask the question, where is my worship insufficient? Where have I robbed God by shortchanging him of his glory? And then the part that scares me even more, where have I made other people feel okay for doing so? Where have I permitted sin and and assured someone that God is okay with that? He'll accept your blind animal. He's fine with it. See, I just, 
I don't think God takes kindly to those that give others false hope. One of the things that I notice is, I mean, you, you might not like the slippery slope metaphor, but it is a real thing that once we start to lower the standards, to continue lowering them is only inevitable. Because there are certain sins that you and I are struggling with today that we are willing to tolerate. I would, I would even challenge you to think about the major controversies in the American church today. What sins are we, are we trying now to tolerate? Just be patient with them. But tomorrow, we're going to start to excuse them. And next week, we'll start condoning those sins. And by next year, we'll celebrate them. Why can Israel not see how they've despised God's name? Because they've been doing so for long enough that they're no longer sensitive to the fact that this is an affront to his name. The things that we do now, with, without any correction, snowball, and to one day we will see no wrong in worshiping God inappropriately. If we mock God and then seek his approval, what does that look like? What does that play out in, in, in our context? I don't think we have to go too far because Malachi 1 verse 9 starts to tell us, he says, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. After you've shortchanged him, after you've sacrificed things you knew you shouldn't, and after you have thought this would be good enough and the priesthood has told you it would be good enough, now come and ask me for my favor. What will happen? With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. This, this can be a hard idea to swallow, and, and I'm still wrestling with it personally. But in an act of brazen defiance against God, he actually says here in this particular paragraph, it would be better that you just stop worshiping me in this way. I have a really good friend who is, um, she, is she has a, a buddy who is, who is a little wayward right now. And, uh, and she was talking to me the other day asking how to help this, this person see the need for repentance. And, uh, and, and it, the, the sin has been called out and, and, and repentance is not coming. It's the heels are starting to dig in. And it's really heartbreaking, but, but as she's asking my advice, she says, I want to give her something in the scriptures to, to read on. I want, what should I give her for her quiet time? And I, and I told her, I don't know that I would give her anything. I don't know that I'm going to encourage someone to go read a book they have no intention of obeying. Because if you do, you might actually give her some false hope. That God is fine with your rebellion so long as you get in your devotions each morning. Now hear me, I'm not saying that you have to be perfect in order to read the scriptures. But I just don't understand why you'd want to if you have no intention of submitting to them. 
God says to Malachi, I wish that they would shut the doors to the temple complex if they're going to keep mocking me this way. And then he continues in verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. You see, one of the things that we struggle to sort through is we just don't want to be harsh with people. We don't want to hurt their feelings as we challenge them to worship God well. But the one thing that we cannot do is mock God's name in the process. We can be kind, we can be merciful, but we need to be firm so that God's name gets its proper glory. My name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. How have we despised your name, unfortunately, much more than any of us know? More than we know. How have you loved us? More than you realize. How have we despised your name? More than you know. Okay, so if we, if we recognize, though, that God is loving, and then we, and then we recognize that we've actually done some, some inappropriate things and we need to shore them up, a lot of us still have a tendency to turn around and ask God, hey, when are you going to do the right thing here? As if he hasn't been. How many of you, when you see the crazy, wrong things being done in our world today, ask God in your prayers, when will you rain down justice? I do. I want to see justice come. And, and I'm quickly brought back to the fact that I today have the, I have the view of 32 years on this planet. And that's um, a rather limited perspective. When I ask him, when are you going to do the right thing? The answer is, whether I can perceive it or not, the answer ends up being all the time. It's the only thing I do. Now, I know what you're saying is that we want justice to come sooner. We want to see justice in its finality. And, and that, is, that is understandable. But to accuse him of being unjust, that's what the Israelites were doing. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, where is the God of justice? As if he's not as if he's absent. But right on the heels of that, we have this incredible prophetic text that many of you will recognize because of its New Testament implications. Malachi 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap? Where's the God of justice, they ask. I'm, I'm coming. Not on your timeline, maybe. Not according to your plan, perhaps. But I'm coming. I'm actually going to send a messenger to pave the way. And then I will return to my temple and it will be wonderful news for those who love me. And then this is the cutting side of the gospel. The gospel is the good news for those who love the Lord and for those willing to mold their lives around him. And the gospel is horrible news for those who hate God. 
It is destructive news for those who hate God and who have no intention of living as he would instruct us to live. Because it says here, my, my, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's wonderful. He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's great. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can? It continues in verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. In his love, God comes. And he will enter his temple in one of the most loving acts you could dream up. The incarnation. Christmas. There's your reason for cheer. God, in his love, sent his son took on human flesh. And when he does, that will be wonderful news for those of us who love God and horrible news for those who will meet the refiner's fire. We'll all be refined at some level, but some of us will be refined to such a degree that we will be the sons of Levi. They're not even here. The priesthood is null and void when Jesus shows up and dies. What's this business about the sons of Levi? Wondering if it's actually talking about a new priesthood. If we will be purified as this new sons of Levi, those of us who have been quickened by the Spirit and redeemed by the blood, we'll be the sons of Levi, purified and refined, and then we will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Where is the God of justice? He's coming, and he's going to do the right thing. Where is God? He is lowering himself in humiliation, in sacrifice, and in life-giving service to his own creation, which is just as astonishing as it gets. There's a certain tone to these questions in Malachi that just misses the very nature of God. It's, it's one thing to say, where, is, where have you been loving towards us? And then we understand his love a little more. And it's one thing to say, how have we done something wrong to you? And we understand his name and its holiness and, and our insufficiencies a little more. And then it's another thing to say, how just have you been? And then he explains it to us. Okay, I understand your love. I understand your name. I understand your justice. But the truth is, Malachi is constantly calling us to the very character of God. And saying, when you don't get God, it's because you've missed his character. You have forgotten who he is. Forgot who he is. In his very nature, he's loving. In his very nature, his name is holy. At the very core of his being, he is only just. Is it bad to ask questions of God? I don't think so. But when you ask them, having forgotten who he is, it gets dangerous quick, and a rebuke will soon come. <laughs> I know of a, a wonderful passage in the Psalms where it seems as if King David is crying out with these questions that appear at first blush as though they're accusing who God of, of doing something wrong here, of not handling things well. Psalm 22 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. And if we stop there, sounds just like the fools in Malachi. If you read that next line, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. David asks these questions, but he does not forget who God is. In his angst, in his agony, he cries out to God, begging him to reveal the truth of what's going on. But he says, when push comes to shove, I know you're holy. I know you're holy. And I know that you're good, and I know that you're loving, and I know that you're just. That's how we ask questions. And we don't have to ever doubt the character of God because his love is unchanging. In fact, I think Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, sums up the, the appeal of the book as best as I can find it. It says this, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Some wonderful truths in that short line. God says, I do not change. He doesn't, if, if we ever wonder what's going on, and we, we, we even for a fleeting second ask, has God, has God moved on this? The answer is always no. I am the only being in the, in the relationship that cannot figure out what to do. God is rock solid. I, the Lord, do not change. And because I do not change, You've not been consumed. To a nation that's wondering whether or not they are truly still the descendants of Abraham, whether or not they're actually going to get the blessings that they were promised, whether or not God will be faithful to them as he said he would be, God assures them with this, I don't change. Therefore, you haven't been consumed. In other words, what I told Abraham I was going to do for the world, I'm going to do it. And I'm still doing it. I haven't crushed you. I could have destroyed you like Esau and like the Edomites. But I loved Jacob, the descendants of Abraham. I've loved them and I've protected them and I've cared for them. And rather than destroy them, I've refined them, sending them into exile and purifying them. And rather than destroy them, I have preserved for myself a remnant from which I will bring the Messiah. Because I don't change. That's wonderful news for those of us who are riddled with worry or angst. If we, if we feel the, the, the tension in the Christmas season and we say, wow, this just seems like a really broken world, that is true. But the one thing I know is that God hasn't been moved off of his center at all. And things are still going according to plan, even when I have no ability to see that. The Old Testament's witness to the very character of God helps me pray better. When I question God's love, and whenever he tells me how loving he is, I, I need to stop and beg him to demonstrate that love to me, to help me remember where he's been loving and I've missed it, to give me people in my life who can point out the kindness that God has rained down on my life. When I am mocking his name, I need him to help me see it and I need him to help me revere the name of God and to speak well of him and to speak well on his behalf to the broken world. When I question his justice, I need him to remind me that he's never been anything but just. Perfectly so. This, 
The character of God shapes my prayer life. I want him to help me see him clearly. Because whenever I doubt, whenever I'm having a hard time, whenever I worry, it's because I'm failing to see him clearly in some way. The book ends in chapter 4 with this promise of what God's going to do. He says this, Behold, the day is coming, calling the nation to patience. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. There's your justice. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. There's the love. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. There's judgment. Remember the law of my servant Moses. There's your standard. The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. This this image of repentance. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God says, I haven't changed in what I've said from the beginning. I'm going to do, I'm going to do. And when we miss it, it's because we've missed the character of God. That's the story of the Old Testament. That's the kings and the prophets. It's God's very character to give a rebellious nation who shouldn't have asked for a king, a king. And then eventually give them a good king who will point them to the soon coming king of kings. That's God's character to do things like that. It's God's character to preserve, despite Elijah's knowledge, the the faithful remnant of, of Yahweh worshipers. It's his character to be faithful to an unfaithful bride called Israel, much like Hosea was faithful to his unfaithful bride. It's God's character to be merciful to the Ninevites who did not deserve it and despite Jonah's objections. It's God's character to tell Jeremiah that I am going to one day circumcise those hearts and they will love me and it will be this glorious new day. It is God's character to tell Ezekiel that despite how poor human leadership has been, I will come and shepherd my people. I will lead them. It's God's character to tell Isaiah, I am sending the prince of peace, and he will be a suffering servant. It's God's character to assure a wayward Israel who does not know how to worship any longer, trust me, I, the Lord, do not change. And it's God's character to come in humiliation and service to a group of people that don't deserve it and incarnate as a Messiah, as a little helpless baby. And then the only thing that might be worse than that is to subject himself to his own people and by the very word of his mouth, let those soldiers continue to breathe, hold the carbon and those nails together as they kill him. That's the character of God. It's God's character in story, famous, famous story told by Jesus, where there's a rebellious son who uh, 
wants his inheritance a little early and so considers his father dead. His father doesn't challenge him, apparently, but lets him have it. And the son, in his rebellion, destroys his own life and comes back broken and penitent. And in a picture of the God that we worship, you have this father in this great story in Luke 15. It says, and while his son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This father represents a God who forgives the most and condones the least, who is unchanging in his love and unchanging in his justice. Jesus gently, gently reminds us of a loving father who hasn't changed and hasn't gone anywhere, and when we return, he's there. In the book of Jude, um, we want to ask this question. Can, can you and I know the character of God? Can we know how loving he is and how holy he is and how perfectly just and righteous he is? Can we know that? and not be affected? Can we know that and remain unsanctified? And in Jude, one of those tiny, tiny books of the New Testament that we seldom read, there's this wonderful little passage that talks about the love of God and how it affects us. It says in Jude 17, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. These are those who give um, assurance to those who ought not have it. These are those who, in their worship, or in the way that they entice others to worship, God says to them, is that not evil? Is that not evil? But you... Verse 20, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. There's this active remembering of the love of God, of the character of God that is necessary for our, our uh, faithfulness and our ongoing sanctification. In the last book of your Bibles, John the apostle encounters the risen Lord. And in Revelation 1, chapter, or verse 5, it says, To him who loves us. How have you loved us? The New Testament bears that out quite well. To him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's that love. How have you loved us? How have we despised your name? He has loved us by freeing us, and to him be glory. No longer must we despise his name. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and those who pierced him in all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him because he is just. Even so, amen. Even so, let it be. And then this incredible line about the unchanging nature of God. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. As we, uh, as we finish the series and go into now the second, um, or the, the second week of Advent, part of the Christmas 
cheer that we ought to have is this, this um, anticipation with the ancient church as they waited for their Messiah, with Israel as they waited for God to deliver on the promises he made to Abraham. And now that he has come, I think we wait with eager anticipation, with joy, and with very real Christmas cheer for his second coming. The message of Malachi, the gospel of the kings and the prophets, is that despite my feelings, despite my fears, despite my anxiety, despite the angst and the tension I feel in this broken, broken world, none of that is to be trusted anywhere near as much as the unchanging character of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for an opportunity to, on this side of your first coming, reflect on just how constant you have been from the beginning. And we are grateful that we have the revelation of Scripture to know who you are and to know what your character is such that we can be sure that you will come back. And as we wait in this broken, broken world, and as we ourselves go from broken people to sanctified people, I pray that our hope will be in you and in you alone. And we look forward to that day when we will see you again, and we will see you in all of your glory, and then we will all say, yes, amen. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, one thing before you go. There is FXmas tonight in the gym from 6 to 7.30. It's very interactive, and it will be fun for all. We encourage you to come.